Hello! And welcome to the Eat a Hamburger edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello! We, that is Emily and I, are happy hamburger eaters. We are also here with Anna Shemansky, who isn't. This is true. Although... <laughs> I do eat. <laughs> she, she does eat. And what's more, we should celebrate this week the insanely successful IPO of Beyond Meat, which went up a gazillion percent. Mazel tov. And so maybe, maybe now that Beyond Meat is, is a <laughs> major public company, Anna might be eating more hamburgers. It's true. You never know. We are going to talk about why both Jack Dorsey and Gwyneth Paltrow should be eating more hamburgers. We are going to revisit a little bit of what we talked about last week because we skipped an important step in the Goop discussion, which we're going to try and unskip in this episode. So if you were, if you felt a little bit unsatisfied at all, if you felt that it was not nutritious enough last week, then we, we will give you some delicious, nutritious Jack Dorsey, Gwyneth Paltrow content at the end of this podcast. We are also going to talk about kidnapping and ransom insurance, which is an amazing part of the world and the whole idea of kidnapping as a profession that people have. But of course... We have to start by talking about Donald Trump's disastrous Fed nominations. He took two political hacks, Herman Cain and Stephen Moore, and said that he would nominate them both to the Federal Reserve Board, and both of those have gone down in spectacular flames. So we're going to talk about that coming right up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Emily Peck. We were just walking in to the studio this morning when you said to me that Stephen Moore, the economic analyst that everyone loves to hate, had written a column for the Wall Street Journal, and I have it up in front of me now, and it's the most amazing piece of primary documentation. The headline is, My Brush with Personal Destruction. <laughs> there yep. was like, it's something out of the Avengers. You know, like, he was fighting Thanos and he almost got crushed to death, but then some other Avenger came in and, like, Mick Mulvaney came in and saved him by pulling him out of the Fed race. It's high-stakes drama going on in Stephen Moore land. Yes, so I think listeners will be familiar probably with who Stephen Moore is by now. He just um, pulled out of contention for nomination to the Federal Reserve Board because people 
pretty easily dug up his sort of terrible columns about women. He had bad takes. He had yes. just Maybe. scorching hot bad takes. <laughs> I mean, I, about women and why that the real danger, I think we discussed last week, was women making more than men would like destroy the fabric of the universe. He said women shouldn't even work in sports arenas unless they're good looking. Yeah, he um, also really doesn't like female referees. Uh, yeah. Because apparently they can't get into a fight with Bobby Knight. It was There was <laughs> very, very poor logic being used at and, every stage here. And then they, they dug up his, like, he was $300,000 behind on child support. There was some really nasty stuff Just that came out stuff. from his divorce yeah. where he was, like, boasting about his two different mistresses to his wife. And, like, so in that sense, he's kind of right. That, like, the fight over Stephen Moore's Fed nomination did become incredibly personal. And he did experience a certain amount of personal destruction. And like his reputation was dragged through the mud. And people won't ever look at him quite the same way again. And none of that would have happened if he hadn't been nominated for the Fed. And none of that had anything to do with his economic policies or opinions, which and this is where he goes completely wrong. He says no one was talking about that. That's not true. Everyone was talking about that. And they are even more crazy and even more disqualifying. Um, starting with his belief in the gold standard. Right. Except that now he's like really into, in a lot of ways, loose monetary policy, although he still has this bizarre theory. That about, prices are going down. Well, yes. And also that he believes that inflation should be targeted under, with an underlying basket of commodities. He had one of these crazy, crazy interviews. One of the things you find with Trumpists, is the real crazy comes out when they are being interviewed by, like, fellow travelers on the right. And so, like, you know, Maria Bartiromo will interview Trump and he'll say something completely insane because he's, like, among friends. And then Stephen Moore was interviewed by the Washington Examiner and he was like, yeah, basically the Fed should be intervening in the markets, in, like, the rate markets, like, to keep a basket of currencies at a certain price in the commodities markets. None of this makes any sense at all. It's completely incoherent. And basically, he just makes it up as he goes along in order to get to the predetermined outcome, which is always, if there's a Democratic president, then rates should go up. And if there's a Republican president, then rates should go down. Right. And this is, I, I will say, like, it, it's not uncommon that you know, since like the kind of modern era of the Fed, basically, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, when you are in office, or especially when you want to get reelected, you tend to push for looser monetary policy. However, what we've been seeing recently is just the kind of, you know, extreme politicization of Fed theory. So you literally have these people who, under Obama, at least there was some continuity to what they were saying in the sense that they were like, well, if you know, if you have these really extremely low rates, you have quantitative easing, you're going to create all this inflation. Of course, none of this happened. However, at least you could like make an argument of why they believe that. And now that Trump's in office and they have to so they have to come up with justifications for why we need to be priming the pump in like not only not taking away the punch bowl, but like putting a lot more alcohol into the punch bowl, it really becomes just incredibly incoherent. And they are egged on every step of the way by the president who has now, I think, completely blown through anything that even Nixon did in like, you know, 
when the yeah. Fed first became independent. Like he is out there on Twitter regularly, like almost every day, saying the Fed needs to cut rates by a hundred basis points. They need to, you know, bring quantitative easing back. Like. Certainly since Nixon, we haven't seen anything. Yeah, I would just say that, like, just (laughs) until he starts planning negative stories in the news about Jerome Powell or, like, LBJ getting into, like, a fist fight (laughs) with Jerome Powell, I will say he still hasn't quite reached the level of what we've seen in the past. And, I mean, he, Stephen Moore went down, Herman Cain. So this is the the bigger picture, that Trump's, Trump, up until Moore and Herman Cain, had done more or less what all presidents do with this highly technocratic thing called the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, which is you appoint people who are more or less vaguely ideologically on your side, but who are ultimately technocrats and who are, nerds. are you know, monetary policy nerds or, or regulation nerds or something like that, who are deeply steeped in, you know, expertise of economics and who will ultimately be independent. And he did that with Jay Powell. And he did that with, you know, basically up until he suddenly woke up one morning and said, I hate the Fed. All of my nominees have not been supporting me and are not doing what I want. And so I am now going to start nominating political hacks. And his first political hack was Herman Cain. And Herman Cain managed to self-destruct even more quickly than... Stephen Moore. I mean, the fact he the, stepped down and said he didn't realize he couldn't make money doing other stuff <laughs> while being on the Fed board. And, so and when he it. said that, he, you know, <laughs> when he was complaining about taking a pay cut to sit on the Federal Reserve Board, we got a little reminder this week of exactly what he means by like making more money outside the Fed <laughs> because he has this incredibly large email list and he just sends out these get rich quick schemes to his e- email subscribers saying, you know, this is how to turn $1,000 into $800,000. And you're like, really, Herman? <laughs> but that was not He's the reason why he got pulled out by the White House. The reason why he got pulled out by the White House, and this is the one vaguely hopeful thing about this whole story, was that it became very obvious very quickly that he wouldn't and couldn't be confirmed by the Senate. There were four senators who came up very early on and said, for Republican senators. And All said, women, I believe. We are not going to support this man who has a long documentation of, you know, sexual assault and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And the minute that he couldn't be confirmed, his nomination was withdrawn. And I'm pretty sure that what happened with Stephen Moore was basically the same thing, that the Senate went up to the White House and said, you know what, there's no way this guy is getting confirmed. And the White House said, all right, we can't get him through. We'll not nominate him. I mean, I think it's really interesting because it's like, the first time the Senate has done its job and vetted some of these like total goofs and loons that the Trump administration, you know, puts forward in almost every other agency and aspect of the federal government. But there's this line that can't be crossed with monetary policy. John Oliver had a good segment on this. And he said, all these guys are goofs. But in this case, this is a job where that's not actually okay, and the Senate sort of like drew that line. And I think we yeah. were we were actually talking about this a little bit before yeah. the show. I also- with with a certain guy called Jordan Weissman, who long long standing listeners of Slate Money might remember, he has a theory. Yes, and he's not in the studio to tell us what his theory. So Anna is going to channel channel Jordan, Jordan. somewhat. I, I'm sure his piece will be much more coherent than I'm being right now. But basically, it has to do with the fact that. Most people neither care nor understand anything about the Fed. <laughs> that if you like voters, basically. voters exactly. Yeah. If you're talking about the vast majority of Americans, they 
and I don't mean this in a like to try to like make fun of people. It's just that most people know nothing about the Fed. So and there's no reason why they should. Right. It's not that important to your day to day life. Well, it's anyway, a larger question, go, but, go but the point is <laughs> that, you know, if, if you have a senator and you're going to go against, say, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, you're probably going to lose your seat. You're definitely going to get primaried. If you say that you're not going to approve Herman Cain or Stephen Moore, like, no, you're, no one's going to primary you on that. Politically, but, it was it was OK to be smart exactly. and reasonable and yeah. draw this line. The interesting open question here is whether the Senate is actually willing to confirm a partisan hack as a Fed board member. You know, like both Kane and Moore were effectively disqualified by the Senate for reasons which had nothing to do with their partisan hackery or their economic illiteracy, but were much more to do with, you know, their attitude towards women, more or less. Definitely with Stephen Moore, it was the attitude towards women, which I would argue, I mean, I know we were saying earlier they they got dirty with that and, and looked at his divorce and alimony records. But you want someone on the Fed Reserve Board to understand that, you know, women are part no, of the No, you economy. do. And, and I think right. it, and I think their attitude, to, but to be clear, their it's attitude important. towards women was in both cases disqualifying. But with Herman well, Cain, was it? I mean, he's, yeah. he'd been... Oh. He, 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 yeah, he has a long history I, uh, of documented sexual assault. I thought it was sexual harassment. Assault. Well, and I also think the, this was a little bit cover also, I think, for not wanting to nominate these people. Yeah, that's people. what I think, too. I, yeah. I, mean, I, I think it was a good, ex- a good excuse. It made the senators look good. But the real reason was money. They don't want the goofs running the money. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we want it. Like, it's trying so, to destroy right. so, the, um, this, so the this environment. This is where it becomes. Our foreign policy. It's fine to wreck the environment. But, like, don't mess with the money. Like, we have billionaire donors, and they don't, they don't want lunatics at the Federal Reserve. So this is, yeah, so I think this is where it is now left. There are still two open seats on the Fed board, and it is almost certain that Trump is not going to go back and nominate some bland technocrat at this point. He is going to double down on nominating a hack of so some he, description. And the question is then, if he nominates a hack who has, you know, who hasn't sexually assaulted who hasn't anyone. sexually assaulted anyone or, or written that like women can't be referees or like you know whose economic policy is is basically complete hackery but who is personally relatively clean then what does the senate do right. and and you know i suspect honestly given how craven the Senate Republicans generally are towards Trump that they'll confirm. just confirm and say, fine, it's going to be one one extra person on the Fed board, but ultimately they're not going to be able to swing the votes. But it's a really bad precedent to politicize the Fed because the Fed must be politically independent. There's no point in having it if it isn't. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. Emily's like, why do I always have to introduce Because you're better things? at explaining these than I am. <laughs> Emily, can you t- tell us about the economics of kidnapping in 280 characters or less. Well, Felix sent around this really interesting book review from the New York Review of Books of these two books that just came out about the kidnapping and ransom 
business. It's a big business. And, you know, while it is bigger in some countries than in others, yes, especially in North Africa and there is a profession. You can be like a professional kidnapper. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating. So I guess kidnapping and, and ransom insurance kind of got its start in 1932 around the Lindbergh. The Lindbergh baby. baby. Right. And so you could get insurance in case, you know, you were kidnapped and held for ransom. But the insurers themselves stayed out of it. Like they didn't do the negotiations, which was problematic because... You know, when your loved one is kidnapped and held for ransom, you're like, here, take all the money. I don't know. But um, I guess. So then they realized that if they wanted to rationalize this. And what's interesting is that the kidnapping world has become super professionalized. Right. Yeah. So you have professionals on both sides now. Yes. You have professional kidnappers who are like, this is my job. What I do is I research people. I kidnap them, I hold them for ransom, I ask for X, I settle for, you know, 0.1 X. Apparently and they send receipts saying, like, we spent this amount of money on water. <laughs> they Yeah, and, and they increasingly treat their hostages quite well in terms of, like, you know, billing the families for, like, you know, food and medicine, whatever else they need, because, like, it's in no one's interest for them to be maltreated necessarily. Right. Yeah, basically, they're kidnappers, but they're concerned about their reputational risk. <laughs> But, and, um, but that's the other thing. Exactly. If, you, if you're a repeat kidnapper, if it's a profession and you do this over and over again, that really helps both sides. It makes it much more likely that you'll get paid because everyone knows, specifically the insurers know, that the last time they negotiated with you, you know, you released the hostage in return for the cash and it all went very smoothly. And if you do that three or four times, then, you know, the amount of money that gets paid is more or less set within a relatively narrow range of parameters. You can kidnap someone with a relatively high degree of predictability in terms of how much money you're going to get. And it becomes this like this job. And and it's become this fairly rational market where part of what you have with these insurers is that they have experts who know basically what the going rates are. So they know not to overpay. They know not to have their opening bid be too high. And they said this is actually important because say someone, you know, is on the wealthier end or say you have a state who wants to come in and get someone back and they overpay. Well, now they've just made they're going to hurt the entire market. So um, one thing that's hanging over all of this kidnapping ransom is industry is very rational is the United States and the UK, which our policy in the U.S. is that we don't pay ransom to terrorists. And the reason why one of these books was written by Joel Simon, who's the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, was because of the 2014 kidnapping of James Foley. If you remember him, he was a photojournalist kidnapped by ISIS. And, you know, ISIS tried to get a ransom for him. The United States said, absolutely not. We're not doing it. Other journalists that were kidnapped at the same time, their countries paid up. We didn't pay up. And he wound up getting beheaded. And Rukmini Kalamaki actually, before she went to the New York Times, wrote a fantastic series on this, on the way that ISIS, especially in North Africa, used kidnapping as a major source of funds, Mm -hmm. largely from the French, interestingly enough. Like, the French seem to be the most willing to pay up the most amount of money. And on some level, the UK-US policy worked in that ISIS was targeting French people and not Americans, because they knew that they would get paid out by the French and not by the Americans. On the other hand, If you're kidnapping an American because America is the great Satan, then there's a good chance that that American is going to wind up getting beheaded. And and so Joel Simon's argument is sort of like this policy is bad. Countries can – they can be involved in paying ransom and not, you know, 
Like, we could have that policy, but then under the table, we could go through the family and negotiate that way and pay that way and have a little bit more flexibility rather than, like, hanging journalists out to dry. And the other thing that's happening is, like, this whole thing about, like, plausible deniability about whether you're a terrorist or not. And you get all of these people sort of, you know, talking about how they're the Taliban, but then officially, when it comes to paying the ransom, they're just common or garden criminals. (laughs) And so we can pay them. Right, and I think James Foley's mother said that the U.S., threatened her with prosecution if they went and paid the ransom, which they wouldn't do if it was just your average criminal kidnapping kind of a thing. Now, one thing I should bring up here is the fact there is one American journalist still missing in Syria. We don't know that he's been kidnapped, but I think he's presumed kidnapped. His name is Austin Tice. And just this week, there was a campaign based mostly in D.C. and thereabouts to raise money for his ransom fund. Um, Even though there's no kidnappers that anyone can identify or who have claimed to be holding him, and even though the FBI has already said that they're looking for him and there's a million dollars in this fund already, there's this idea floating out around there that if members of the public toss in extra bucks into this ransom fund, then the ransom fund will get bigger and somehow that will make it more likely that the, you know, that he will be able to be freed. I don't entirely understand this logic, especially since it's the FBI and it's like if they needed to pay more money, they probably could. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, you know, I think that on some level, this idea of you know, kidnapping being a profession and what you do is you pay the money and you get the person back has now become internalized in not just in countries like Libya, but also in the United States. And people are like, oh, yeah, throw some money in and that will help him help get him back. Get that GoFundMe going. Exactly. Well, because I mean, I think, yes, I think we'd all love a perfect world where no one pays and so there's no kidnapping, but we just know that that's not going to happen. And I think that in some of these books, what they've brought up is the idea that to be more rational about this, what governments really should do is should work with some of these insurers because a lot of the people who really need this are journalists, people for working for mm-hmm. NGOs who do not have the money to pay the premiums that you have to pay for this type of insurance. Well, I mean, again, we it's, it's complicated because one of the interesting little quirks that, that came out in the New York Review, is that if you're a company taking out K&R insurance, it's called kidnapping and ransom. If you're a company taking out K&R insurance on your employees, the first rule is... Don't tell them. The employees are not allowed to know. And so if you are working for, you know, the Washington Post and you're in Iraq and you genuinely don't know whether you're covered or not, the idea that, like... Nonprofits and newspapers don't have this is like genuinely no one knows and people who work for nonprofits and newspapers do get kidnapped and they do get released and is there a ransom paid in those situations again like these things are covered in extreme secrecy most of the time these things happen they are never publicized at all that people get kidnapped and released and like the public you know journalists interestingly often find out especially when it's journalists who get kidnapped because Mm -hmm. um, we talk to each other a lot but it never comes out in public it never comes out in the press and the journalistic world does this job of like keeping these things very secret because it's in everyone's interest to keep them secret. So no one knows whether whether these people are getting ransomed or not. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Let's talk about Goop for Men. People are... Okay. We can talk about the fact that people are angry that people last are week. People Okay. So let's... So probably talk about that I feel like, bit. yeah, we should talk about this a little bit. We did get angry emails, and we do read your angry emails. And so everyone who sent in an angry email saying, how dare you be nice about Goop, I think we skipped a step like a little bit too quickly when we were talking about goop in that there is a part of goop that is unambiguously bad and they publish articles more in the past than in the present but even in the present they are, they publish a bunch of pseudoscience which is harmful and evil and they shouldn't be publishing it and that is bad then the next step, which we went on to, was like, well, you know, where is the demand for this pseudoscience coming from? Is it a failure of the medical profession? That kind of stuff. And there's also a different next step, which is let's keep in mind here that the vast majority of what Goop does is not pseudoscience. It's just selling cosmetics. And if you think that cosmetics are, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 you know, a pseudoscience, you're probably right. But, you, you know, you Definitely. can go against like you can go up against L'Oreal and Estee Lauder and people rather than Goop for that one. It was interesting how much I mean, I agree that we should have sort of taken that step of saying, you know, Goop peddles all the pseudoscience and that's not good right. and they've been fined for it. But it was interesting to see the vitriol. with No, I, and I think and, and I do think and I do think that most of the vitriol is coming from people who have never visited yes. Goop. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's like, right. Yeah, I mean, you go on this website, it is the vast majority just a very high-end beauty and health website. It, it's like most other kind of and, women's... And there's, but, but there's it, all this it, stuff it does, about clean. There's a lot of clean eating that goes on. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to momentarily when we talk about So it. let's talk about clean eating and let's let's stop talking about Gwyneth because literally like, there is a point at which you have talked too much about Gwyneth and we have reached that point. Peak and let's Gwyneth. talk about Jack Dorsey because he is, as Nellie Bowles really quite wonderfully put it in a profile for The Times... The male Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> so, uh, except he looks like he's, you know, kind of dying. So that's yeah. the point. So Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow, good. like every time anyone writes about her, you know, the profile writer has to spend at least seven paragraphs, like gushing about her perfect skin and how she wafts perfectly and she's beautiful and perfect. And no one has ever said that about Jack Dorsey. He he looks gaunt and has that like scraggly beard and like no one's ever kind of looks at him and goes, Oh my god, that is like the perfect man. And yet but, and yet So he went on a podcast, it was I think a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about as so many rich and famous people do about his daily routine and what he eats, etc. So oh, more to the point what he doesn't, doesn't eat. eat. He eats <laughs> One meal a day during the week, one meal a day at the end of the day, and it's just like a little protein and vegetable. And on the weekends, he he doesn't eat. Yes, yeah, so like, just he to be fast. Yeah, just to be clear, fasting. This is an eating disorder. Like I'm sorry, like this is an eating disorder, and this is what infuriates me. I'm just gonna bring Gwyneth a little bit back here. <laughs> is that like when you're talking about things that are actually truly, truly dangerous? 
yes, some of the stuff that went Gwyneth Paltrow pedals is horrible and, 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 and dangerous. dangerous. However, eating disorders are really, really serious. They are the mental health that has the highest rate of mortality. And when you have these people with power and money that are promoting these ideas, it just really infuriates me. And it's working. I mean, according to the, the Nellie Bowles article, interest in fasting has gone way up thanks to Jack Dorsey, who does And eat. also like his his bizarre <laughs> flavor of vinyasa yoga and his he he like does what's it called? Cryo something. Cryotherapy. Cryotherapy and near infrared Wait, saunas. And what about how he drinks salt water? And that is now popular. <laughs> so if you if you ever find Delicious yourself stranded water. in the ocean, just drink the sea. I mean, what? No, it's it's all just such absolute nonsense. And the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was just to think historically about this a little bit, because this is actually not uncommon. Because Steve Jobs was known for having weird ideas about yeah, a, a diet. but he didn't proselytize them. No, no, fair enough. But I'm just saying that I, I think there is a reason that a lot of these very kind of like wealthy, powerful men are drawn to this. Even John D. Rockefeller actually was like really into homeopathy and had strange ideas about diet. But there is this, you know, and what happens is by coincidence or not, and we, you know, had Adam Fisher on giving his oral history of Silicon Valley, it probably isn't a coincidence. You know, these tech companies are generally located in the middle of like the hippie culture of Northern California. And there's a lot of the hippie culture mm -hmm. of Northern California. It has made its way through and up to the top. And Finding people like Jack Dorsey in the Bay Area is not hard. It never has been hard. People, mm -hmm. you know, who go off and do 10-day silent retreats and who are into, you know, weird soul cleansing or whatever, you know, that's normal for Berkeley. I want to point out one thing, which is that I think it was Nick Bilton on his podcast, which is for Vanity Fair, pointed out that it's really unclear how much of Jack Dorsey's alleged routine is perhaps exaggerated right. bullshit. Like, I think Bilton pointed out, Dorsey says he does a 220-degree sauna every day, and Nick Bilton was like, you would just die. Like, you would die in that sauna, you know, after, like, a second or something. So it may be that he's the fact that he's saying he eats one meal a day and nothing on the weekends might be an exaggeration. Right, it's, it's like the breatharians who claim to live only on air. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. So you, some you, of this is Like, hype. you know yes. that is exaggerated. It's also like anyone who's ever told you about how much money they've made in Bitcoin or cannabis <laughs> stocks or anything like that. Right, right. Like, they are lying. Yeah. yeah, like most people who say they, like, hardly eat anything are eating things because right. we're humans. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but the fact is <laughs> that out. he says that he's doing all of this extreme stuff. Which he is says that he's, you know, in others. all of this pain as he's doing his silent meditation in Myanmar without, you know, worrying <laughs> about the local, you know... Genocide? <laughs> yeah, local genocide. And then once he says this, and once he puts up his, like, massive Twitter threads about them, what happens is that a huge number of followers, I don't know how else to put it, go ahead and say, oh my God, Jack Dorsey is doing that. I think I should do it too. Mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. They follow his lead and the cryo tents or whatever they're called, like start selling out months in advance and he can move merch. Also, what do we think it means that the CEO of Twitter and Square is barely eating? Like, do we think his brain is functioning at the level that a guy running two companies should, you know, should be Absolutely functioning? Absolutely not. And, I mean, Twitter yeah. needs a lot of work, right? I mean, they have problems. And yeah, absolutely not. Like, he's not eating enough calories. This isn't a good leader, right? And, Just and like the, Elon Musk needs Well, sleep. so this Jack is the Dorsey other thing. Food. Exactly. <laughs> what is it about Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey? 
that, you know, they're the abnormal CEOs with abnormal habits who are clearly mentally unstable on some level because you don't, you know, and they're the ones who get idolized and who everyone like goes well, along and say, like, I want to be like that person. No one ever goes around saying, oh, you know, the person I want to emulate is like Tim Cook because Tim Cook is really boring. I think this makes sense, though, because we do live in a culture where people will brag about how many hours they work. And you also increasingly see kind of the in the kind of higher up you go in corporations, the more people will talk about how much they exercise, how much they don't eat. There is this idea of discipline. I feel mm. like when you look back at, you know, like the 1980s and you hear about like big power lunches and all of that, like it's a very, very different idea of what it meant to be rich and successful. And now it is so much about discipline. And I think these people just really epitomize that. And, and it's it's also tied into this weird resurgence of stoicism, which mm -hmm. I don't entirely understand. But like everyone in tech bro land is reading the stoics all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, I guess. But there is this idea that, yeah, like we, we are all going through some kind of painful quest and that you need to suffer in order to succeed and this kind of stuff. Why is it? And now I'm thinking about it, the 80s power lunge versus like the clean eating. I want to go back to Dorsha, today. What, you know? Like what changed? Was it was it women entering the workforce or something? <laughs> like we can always put it on that. But did something else change that that makes all these, you know, powerful people want to work 90 hours a week? I mean, Claire Kane Miller had that good piece last weekend where she said, you know, the real rewards now come to those who can work extra, extra long hours, extra hard, use more discipline, like something has really changed. Yeah, I mean, I think the overwork has always been a little bit of an American. I mean, we have this like Protestant work ethic. We've always really, really, really prized working a lot. But I do think there has been a shift from like kind of the celebration of hedonism. Yeah. And and that is interesting. And why has that happened? I mean, there are, I'm sure you could come up with a million. So I have, I'm going to just like drop this in here right now. It's a little bit far in advance. The book doesn't come out until September, I think. But Daniel Markovitz, he of the legendary Yale Law School graduation speech, has written a book about this. And I really want him to come on Slate Money mm -hmm. and, and talk about it. But, you know, the, the short version is basically we have created this insanely hardworking meritocratic elite. And we have trained people now from like the age of 11 that, you need to be heads down and working super hard in order to win, 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 win all the time in the way that just was not the case in the 80s. You know, there wasn't this kind of idea that you needed to beat everyone to get into Yale Law School to blah, blah, blah. It was more still old school in those days, you know, when George W. Bush could get into Yale on the, you know, with a gentleman's C, as it was known. <laughs> you know, you can't do that anymore. Um, well, well okay. if you pay that due, unless, unless, yeah. Well, if you do, if you do do that now, then you risk, um, <laughs> you risk going to jail. Anyway, we're gonna get Daniel Markovitz on because I, you know, this is one of my favorite speeches that I, I keep on rereading. It's so good, but yeah, I think Jack Dorsey does, in some ways, epitomize that kind of like you can be happy or you can be successful, but like you can't be both. But underneath that is. It's just a lie. Like, if it was Jane Dorsey, like, I don't think Jane Dorsey would be running two separate companies and fasting and slowly disintegrating before our eyes and, and people would be idolizing her. There's something else going on also. And I'm not sure what it is. I have no 
articulate explanation, but I think it's it's more complicated. I think you're right. I think some kind of like false. It's, it's just it's a show. I think that he's putting on. You know, it's it's just like the o- the only other the only woman I can think of who even comes close really was Margaret Thatcher, who was very like she was like I only need to sleep four hours a night and I work harder than anyone else. Because and- if you're a woman in the eighties, you know, or now you have to work really really hard. I think to be successful in a way that someone like Jack Dorsey really doesn't like he needs to chill and eat a hamburger and maybe give up one of his ceo jobs please or just let us edit our tweets (laughs) hello i'm imi harper on the slow newscast from tortoise i tell the story of how a hong kong billionaire was silenced i got bombs thrown into my house i got people camp here ransacked my computer and i i got people fractured me i got this and that but i'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. I'm going to start, since we're talking about Elon Musk, my number is $2.35 billion. Elon Musk was swearing up and down until he was blue in the face, up until about five minutes ago, that he was he didn't need any more money. He had all the money he ever needed. And now he's changed his mind. He's raising $2.35 billion of new equity. He's uh, doing a convertible bond, which is a you know swanky Wall Street way of saying issuing stock for $1.6 billion. And then he's just issuing a straight out another $750 million of stock, which is on some level a climb down because he said he wouldn't do it and was very adamant about that. And he was cutting costs left, right and center to try and avoid having to do this. But on another level, it's incredibly sensible because if you're losing money and the stock market is desperate to give you more money, then you should just, you know, not look a gift horse in the mouth and take it. The share price went up when he announced this share issue. Anna, what's your number? My number is $4.4 billion. So that is the amount that Kangmai Pharma, a Chinese company, overstated their cash balance. $4.4 billion. This, yeah, their, their market cap is $7.8 billion. So <laughs> the reason that I think this is interesting is not just because, you know, people have said this is actually unprecedented in China, but also because this is a company that is increasingly having a hard time financing itself. And this is something we are seeing. Everyone's like, yeah. why do you need to finance yourself if you have $4.4 billion in the bank? <laughs> well, you would still need to actually, I mean, because you need to pay off your loans. I mean, like the way that that works in terms of cash, it's, it's a little different. But still, we're seeing increasing numbers of defaults in China. And you're seeing distressed investors starting to get actually more and more interested in China. And I do think this is something people really should be watching. Emily. I was going to do kind of a depressing number, but I just made a game-changing decision. And my number is 10 cents. That is how much it costs me if I want a plastic bag at my supermarket now because my town started charging 10 cents for bags and didn't ban them, but charging 10 cents, which... I have been sort of like reflecting on how that has changed my behavior at the store because it's not a lot of money. And like it doesn't if they just added the 10 cents and gave me the bags, I would never notice. But they do this thing where you check all the food and then they say, do you need a bag? 
and then you say, oh, I forgot, and then you pay the 10 cents, and it, it feels like a pain point. So I've actually changed my behavior, and now I bring bags with me to the supermarket, and I've noticed so does everyone else in the town, which is sort of interesting. And then I looked it up on Planet Money, and it's like the environmental impact is kind of questionable because right. people still need plastic bags, so then they start buying like garbage bags, so then there's like no... And also the number of times you need to use a tote bag for it to be more environmental. Yes, right. like 150 bag. times or something, mm-hmm. which maybe I'll, I'll get to. But anyway, it was really interesting to me how 10 cents, which is not a lot of money and doesn't matter, has actually changed my behavior and just makes you think of all the other things you could change. Just a dime. The sort of behavioral economics of this is super fascinating mm-hmm. because there was this famous Kahneman and Tversky story, I guess it's not even an experiment, where they looked at what happened when there was this school which had a problem with parents arriving late to pick up their kids and it was driving the teachers up the wall because they would have to stay late with the kids waiting for the parents to turn up and so what they did was they implemented a fine system basically and they said like if you are more than five minutes late we're going to charge you five dollars and the effect of this on parents arriving late was it went up rather than down because suddenly parents didn't think of it as a fine but they thought of it as a fee basically mm-hmm. like oh i can turn up late and as long as i pay the money i mm-hmm. can pick up my kids late and it's mm-hmm. fine mm-hmm. yeah um, right and so like it's weird that in that case like it exacerbated the problem but whereas in the case of plastic bags it feels more like an actual fine yeah and it, it really works and i think it's because it it becomes this sort of like it's still just a pain point like do you need a bag like i find if i forget my bags i'll be like i don't need a bag <laughs> and i'll just put my groceries straight up in the cart and just like deal with them flying around the car that was a huge mistake by the way i would never do that again but there's but something you, about but if it if you left your bag by mistake in the back of the car then maybe you can do that yeah. well yeah. i think i think the key there i, I don't know like is a little bit of convenience that when you are going to buy that, you know, you're buying your groceries and then you now have to go and you say, oh, now I have to go pay this extra thing. It feels like you have to do something. Whereas when you're you can say, oh, well, I can show up late. It's both the same idea. It's just taking a fact of like they've done studies that say, like, if you put tongs out, people will eat less because it's harder to pick up stuff with tongs. Mm -hmm. Like human beings will do like the weirdest things if they're more convenient. So less plastic bags is better. We approve of that. Sure. It's good. Maybe. I I feel cool. The totes actually carry more groceries, so you need fewer of them, and it's Mm -hmm. easier to sort of like... And they're more comfortable. Food shop. It's very nice. I'm I'm a big fan of tote bags, even though like every other middle-class person, I have far too many of them. (laughs) There is a problem with too many tote bags. Problem of our age. (laughs) But if you want a Slate Money tote bag, come to Slate Plus Live next time we're having one of those. I think that's one in June. Wait, are there Slate... Tote bags? I yes. want one. Yeah, they, I have a they're, they're orange. One, yep. Yeah. We'll get you an orange tote bag. June, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Jessamine is waving her slate tote bag at us so through cool. the window. Yeah. All right. We have completely disappeared down the rabbit hole here. Let's extricate ourselves from this hole by thanking the owner of the tote bag, Jessamine Molly, for producing this show. She is great not only at producing, but also at tote bags. Thank you all of you guys for listening. Do keep the emails coming. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.